lots and lots of spoilers. Hello and welcome back to Max Mike Movies in French Morocco. This week we're starting an abbreviated series as we sneak up on our upcoming 100th episode. This series is simply a few of our favorite things, wherein Mike and I each choose some of our all-time favorite movies, also our favorite whiskers-on-kittens and brown paper packages <laughs> tied up with strings, uh, the movies we can watch over and over again and they never get old. My favorite is Pudding the Musical! <laughs> I know, Mike, I know. Pudding is good. It's good. You want, you, you want a sippy cup? Uh, yes. Have a sippy cup. There you go. I'm leading off this week with what I consider one of the greatest American movies of all time. Spoiler! <laughs> 1942's Casablanca. Ooh. Does this movie hold up after the umpteenth viewing? No. For, that, for the answer to that, you will have to wait. And wait. <laughs> and wait. It's garbage! <laughs> Enough waiting. I'm your jaded American expat host, Max Levine, and over there, representing free French fries, is Mike Luce. <laughs> I won't even say it. I won't even say it. But yes. And hey, we have a sponsor this week. This episode is brought to you by Asphalt Flavored, flavored Pop-Tarts. <laughs> oh, yes. That, that's asphalty oh, goodness. Wait, I'm sorry. Frosted Asphalt Flavored, flavored Pop-Tarts, which look, I can't look it up, even folks. say. He's not making this up. Uh, yeah, I, well, I didn't make it <laughs> well, up. Well, somebody did, did make it up. It's yes, not, yes. Yes. Don't, don't, don't go on Amazon looking for Asphalt Pop-Tarts, really. No. Well, no, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> While you're at it, look for fish and chip and Popeye's fried chicken. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd made that up. Anyway, uh-huh. you're probably so, going to get uh, to some business, right? Yes, I am. There is business first. If, as always, you can find a complete catalog of all our shows, plus extra secret surprises, so secret that they don't exist, at our website, <laughs> maxmikemovies.com, which is also where you can email us with Queries, quandaries, conundrums, and anything you like at us at maxmikemovies.com. You can find us on the social mediators at uh, Twitter and at Facebook with at maxmikemovies.com. You can also find us on Spotify, and you can listen to us on the podcast app of your choice, the Google Podcast app, the Apple Podcast app, and those are your only choices! So decrees Lord God Max. I have spoken. Lord God! <laughs> Sorry, that's a deep Star Trek rest for... Very deep yeah. cut. Yeah. So uh, before I get to trivia, I understand you have some uh, sort of retconning trivia or trivia of the past. I do. So we were... Or we... I was contacted by one of our, our listeners. listeners. Our, excuse um, me, very good-looking, well-groomed, and well-dressed listeners. Yes, and this would be uh, somebody who's helped us out a little bit with the sound, because uh, although I am the sound engineer, I am not a sound engineer. Uh, <laughs> you heard he comes in six packs. Uh, this is Douglas Austin. Hey, Douglas. Hey, He's Doug. a longtime listener, never time call. Well he, well, he texted me. Anyway, this is in reference to a film we did a few uh, episodes back, uh, which is Space Jam. Uh, Actually, yes. at this point, I think it was it's probably like eight episodes back, but that's okay. Uh, as we record this, it was only like three weeks ago. Um, and he had a little bit of extra trivia, which I did not know about, and I don't think you knew about either. So, Max, I probably you know? did. Well, find out, because I'm going to ask <laughs> you, and then you'll have to prove it. <laughs> Do you know why Michael Jordan, quote-unquote, retired to go play baseball? He was too tall. 
My answer was his feet got too big. Uh, <laughs> no, apparently Mr. Jordan, and this, is, this was uh, brought to my attention by Douglas Austin, whose real name is Doug, but I call him Douglas because too bad. Uh, apparently, he had uh, a slight case of uh, Pete Rose syndrome. Uh-oh. Did he, did he do a naughty thing? Well, he had a gambling is- issue. Ooh. And apparently, bec- they didn't want him, the, the, the basketball commissioner or, or group or whatever, whatever that governing body is, uh, decided that instead of Michael Jordan becoming the Pete Rose of basketball, maybe he should go play baseball for a while and think about what he did. <laughs> oh, so this was like a, a slap on the wrist? I think pretty I, much. I yeah, did not I, know that. And I didn't get any details on this. And uh, uh, it's I was like, oh, okay. Wow. Did did not know. I did not know that. I did no, not no. know that. No um, wonder he didn't hey, want that pu- that publicized. It uh, sort of goes against his very squeaky clean image. Yes, the Mr. Good Guy. So, mm-hmm. hey, if you have little pieces of trivia, little follow-up bits like this, please, by all means, email us or leave a comment on the website. Yep. Or you can text us if you happen to know us that well but we will use it on the show so i would like to thank doug austin again for providing that yep. little piece of trivia and if anyone would like to refute that michael you know my number you can text me directly he doesn't know your number he might you don't know <laughs> so but ah, trivia for this week trivia. the show well, there is a crap ton of information about this movie out there. I mean, I could just read the whole stu- thing and that would be the whole show. So I've tried to winnow it a bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the budget for this was about $950,000. Made worldwide about $4 million. Pretty successful. <laughs> Wasn't as big a hit initially in America as it later came to be. Hmm. Although it, at the Oscars, it did win Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Uh, oh, well. Bogart and Claude Rains were both nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, respectively. They did not win. Oh. Do you now, know who won? Uh, that year, I do not. Okay. Uh, a couple, I want to go through a couple of pieces of trivia that everyone knows or everyone thinks they know. First, uh, studio publicity in 1941 claimed that Ronald Reagan and Anne Sheridan <laughs> were scheduled to appear in the film... And Dennis Morgan was mentioned as the third lead. This was never the case. Let me get this. Let me make this really clear. (laughs) Ronald Reagan was never approached or considered for the role of Rick or any other role in Casablanca. Well, I don't know that's true. This was a false story that was planted either by a studio publicist or a press agent for the three other actors just to keep their names in the press. He never got further than bedtime for Bonzo. Ah. Or, of course, the Knut Rockney story. Knut? Is that how how you pronounce that? There's a bloody K in it. I'm pronouncing it. Ah. And, of course, the... hmm? Sorry, but yes. Just real quick, the yeah. winner for Best Actor in 1943, which I assume is for 1942 yeah. uh, films, is James Cagney for Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is oh. kind of a big role for him. That was. Oh. but Okay, that's fair. Uh, and it, it, this is the piece of trivia everybody already knows, but why not? Rick never says, in fact, nobody ever says, play it again, Sam, in the movie. Nope. He's, he says, you played it for her, you can play it for me. If she can take it, I can take it, so play it. 
Ilsa says, play it, Sam, play as time goes by. The incorrect line became the basis for spoofs such as A nice Night in Casablanca, Marx Brothers, and play it again, Sam, Woody Allen. The entire picture was shot in the studio, except for the sequence showing Major Strasser's arrival, which is filmed at famed, famed Moroccan airport, Van Nuys Airport in Los Angeles. Ah. And a few short clips of stock footage views of Paris. Oh, that's the uh, I have to go back. That's the wrong year. Because ah. apparently, you got the year wrong. Apparently, uh, Casablanca was 1943. What? That doesn't that's make what sense. it says. That doesn't match. And it was. Anything. All right. Uh, um, and for that year, the best actor was Paul Lucas. Who? From Paul Lucas, you know, uh, from Watch on the Rhine. And to give you an oh. idea of who he was up against and who uh, Humphrey lost to, we also have Gary Cooper, Walter Pigeon, and oh. Mickey Rooney. So, Paul huh. Lucas, everybody. Paul Lucas. Paul okay. Lucas. <laughs> This is the film debut of Joy Page. I'm sure you knew that. Yes. Yeah, Joy Page is the girl who plays the young Bulgarian wife. Oh, yes, yes. The okay. one who comes and asks about Captain Renault. She, she, she's remarkable for two things. One, she's the stepdaughter of studio head Jack Warner. Wonder how ah. she got the role. And the other is that she, Humphrey Bogart, and Dooley Wilson, who plays Sam, are the only American-born people in the credited cast. Hmm, cool. Everyone else is from other countries. Uh, on you know, per, after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7, forty-one. The next day, Warner Brothers readers began evaluating this unproduced play that nobody had heard of called "Everybody Comes to Rick's" as a possible movie. It was great timing because the studios were desperate to get patriotic movies into production. Two weeks later, Warner's executive in charge of production, Hal B. Wallace, who's the producer of this film, decided mm. to make the film, change the title to mirror the exotic romanticism of the studio's hit Algiers, and announced it as a done deal before the contracts were signed. Oops. This is probably one of the reasons that the authors, Murray Bennett and Joan Allison, really it was Joan Allison, Murray Bennett was sort of along for the ride, received the record, the highest payment of the time for the rights to an unproduced play, $20,000. Ooh, that's a lot of asphalt-flavored pop That's a lot of Pop-Tarts <laughs> right there. Yeah. Uh, to maximize the profits from foreign distribution of the film, the studio suggested that any unpleasant characters other than the Nazis should also be from an enemy country, namely Italy. Italy was the second of the three Axis powers. Okay. That's why Signor Ugarte, Signor Ferrari, and even the sleazy European pickpocket are all supposed to be Italian. There are vultures, vultures everywhere. everywhere. I, I never Italian, got that because huh? first of all, Ugarte doesn't sound particularly Italian, and yeah, Peter Lorre really doesn't sound Italian. And neither does Sidney Greenstreet. No. <laughs> oh, well, whatever. Uh, the letters of transit that are the the big MacGuffin for the movie, mm. they're really not a MacGuffin because they actually do, they are uh, part of the plot. Uh, they, they never existed in Vichy-controlled France. There was no such thing as a letter of transit. It, it was just a, it's a, just a plot device invented by the screenwriters. Joan Allison, one of the, the playwrights, always expected someone to say, hey, these don't exist. Nobody ever did. Who cares? Yeah. Many of the actors who played Nazis in the movie 
were in fact German Jews who had escaped Nazi Germany. Yeah, I mean, you can tell, like, the guy who plays Carl, I don't know his name off the top of my head, but he is obviously very German. Yeah, but I mean, all of the Nazis, the, uh, like, Heinz and Strasser, well, we'll get to Strasser, he's interesting, too. Uh, During production, Humphrey Bogart was called to the studio to stand in the middle of the cafe set and nod. And then he went home. He had no idea what the nod meant in the story. That was the moment where he gives the okay for the band to play the Marseillaise. <laughs> he had no idea. Okay, okay, bogey, stand there. Good, look over here and nod. Okay, you're done. Good night. <laughs> that was probably a $20,000 nod. Yeah. In the famous scene where the Marseillaise is sung over the German song, uh, The Watch on the Rhine, many of the extras, you can see them there crying. They were really crying because a lot of them were refugees from Nazi persecution and this just really, they were all overcome by the emotions. Mm. Now, Warner Brothers hadn't meant to use that song, Watch Die Wacht am Rhein, Watch on the Rhine. They were going to use the anthem of the Nazi party, the Horst Wessel Lied, which you've heard in every Nazi movie. You know, da 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 uh, it's huh. yeah, really horrible. It's a real toe tapper. Oh yeah, but it's instantly recognizable. However, <laughs> you see, the Watch on the Rhine was from 1840, so there was no copyright. The, copy, <laughs> the copyright was conferred on the Horst Wessel lead was controlled by a German company, and the Warners dropped the anthem because uh, they didn't want to violate the rights, which would have prompted the German copyright holder to sue them. They didn't want During to get sued by the Nazi party, yeah. <laughs> During World War II. Pretty much. Really worried about that, huh? Hmm. That that was that was a, apparently a big concern. Conrad Veidt, who plays Major Strasser, he was well known in the theatrical community in Germany for his blind hatred of Nazis and his friendship with Jews, including his wife. Nice that he was a friend of hers. In fact, he had to escape the country in a big hurry when he found out the SS had sent a death squad after him because of his anti-Nazi activities. Veidt had it in his contract that he only played villains because he was convinced that playing suave Nazi baddies would help the war effort. Huh. That is very cool. The guy said, I want you to typecast me as a bad guy. He's really good at it. He really, (laughs) really is. Now, is that the, the major thing you have for Conrad Veet? Um, Apart from the fact that apparently he and Bogart didn't like each other at all. So but, he uh, actually yeah. holds a very interesting place in popular culture, although almost nobody knows it. Huh? He, visually, mm-hmm. is the original inspiration for the Joker. Oh, he played- the, one, the Max Finger Joker? The original oh, Bill Finger, excuse me. Bill Finger. So the original cartoon back oh, in the '30s wow. representation of the Joker is very obviously. If you want to go ahead and, and do a quick search for this, you don't have to do this now because we're recording. But yeah. I mean, you who are listening, huh. if you type in Conrad Veet and Joker or Conrad Veet, the man who laughs, he did a film in 1928 oh, called I The didn't Man know Who Laughed. I heard of that. Yes. And as soon as you see the photos of him as the man who laughs, you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> because I, I swear, there's the earliest depictions of the Joker are taken from the publicity photos wow. of that movie. And, and at, at what point does he say, do you ever, I ever tell you how I got these scars? You know, he doesn't. Oh. Because 
Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so for people who might be interested in something very trivial, it's something that I've known for a long time because I worked in a comic book store. But, yeah, yeah. Comrade Veet, okay. Joker. Look it up. Cool. Veet is V-I-E-D-T. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead and look it up. You'll see f- pictures from the man who laughs, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, great. There's a real person who can look like that. Uh, awesome. Yeah, and that's so, comforting. Yeah. Uh, an interesting point, in the 1980s, someone kind of as a gag sent this fil- the script for Casablanca to readers at a bunch of the major studios and production companies under its original title, Everybody Comes to Rick's. Some of the readers recognized the script. Most of them didn't. Wow. And many of them complained the script was not good enough to make a decent movie. Others gave complaints as too dated, too much dialogue, not enough sex. <laughs> Yeah, Casablanca, ladies and gentlemen. I think it's safe to say there is no sex in this film. Well, there's some implied. Mm, I'm going to argue with him on that, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, The director, Michael Kurtis, was Hungarian and had a very thick Hungarian accent that sometimes caused some problems on the set. He asked a prop man for a poodle to appear in one scene. The prop man looked everywhere for a poodle while the whole crew waited. He finally found one, presented it to Curtis, and Curtis screamed at him, No! A poodle! A poodle of water! (laughs) Okay. Oops. Uh, Because the film was made during World War II, the production wasn't allowed to film at an airport after dark for security reasons. Instead, it used a soundstage with a small cardboard cutout airplane and forced perspective. Yeah, we'll give that a pass. Yeah, Yeah. to give the illusion that the plane was full-sized, they used little people to portray the crew preparing the the plane for takeoff. Years later, the same technique is used in Alien in 1979 in the scene where the crew discovers the dead space jockey with Ridley Scott's son and some of his friends in scaled-down suits. (laughs) Yep. Wow, Halloween must have been awesome for him that year. <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't it be? Yeah. Uh, there's a slight difference in height between Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, and it changes throughout the film. You think so, huh? Bergman was a couple inches taller than Bogart. No. And to cre- yeah, to create the illusion that it was vice versa, Curtis had Bogart stand on boxes and sit on pillows, hmm. or had Bergman slouch down which is evident when she sits on the couch and does the frank-for-your-thoughts scene. Yeah. Uh, Rick's Café Américain was modeled after the Hotel El Minza in Tangiers, Morocco. In 2006, by the way, this script was named the best screenplay of all time by the Writers Guild of America. This piece of trash, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, this hack job. Uh, In the market scene, one of the resistance members is shot and the wall of the building behind him is painted with a picture of Marshal Henri Philippe Pétain, who was a major figure of Vichy, and a quote attributed to him in English. The quote reads, I keep my promises, even those of other people. Oops. Yeah. After the shooting for the movie was done, Max Steiner spoke against using As Time Goes By as the song identifying Rick and Ilsa, saying he'd rather compose an original song in order to qualify for royalties. However, Wallace, the director, replied that since, uh, the producer, excuse me, replied that since the filming had ended, Ingrid Bergman had cut her hair very short in For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was shooting at a distant locale, and she couldn't reshoot the already completed scenes that had used time goes as time goes by. 
So, oh darn, we were stuck with As Time Goes By. Well, the interesting thing about that song, I don't know if you knew this, but it was not a big hit. No, it was not. Not for a long time. No, it was a, it was a song that had come out a number of years before the film. It was just in the corral of Warner Brother owned songs, and they're like, yeah, use this, we already own it. <laughs> <laughs> so, And of course, uh, after this... Yeah. Dooley Wilson, by the way, who plays Sam, was a drummer. Not a piano player. He didn't know how to play the piano. Ah. He, he was actually sort of, he, he watched another guy off stage playing and mimicked his hand gestures. And in fact, I was watching for this. In one of the very few scenes where you can see his hands while he's playing, his left hand is flat. It's just he's <laughs> holding his hand over the keys. Uh, well, that's a very specific song, Max, and it only calls for the right hand. Ah, I'm surprised he, you didn't know that. <laughs> well, no, uh, I'm not. The, the producer, Hal Wallace, almost made the character of Sam a woman. Oh, no. It was, hmm? No. No, it wouldn't have worked, but <laughs> the people he wanted for it were like Hazel Scott, who I've never, I don't know, Lena Horne, or <laughs> Ella Fitzgerald. Okay. And I know it wouldn't have worked as a woman. But can't you see Ella Fitzgerald in this movie? Oh, my God. Well, she's no Paul Lucas. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, but it would have brought a really weird I, vibe. Yeah, Sam is a troubling character in in general. We'll get to him. Yeah, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the original script, the, the play, Ilse is not such a virtuous woman. She was all, living with an already married American businessman. It was Rick who left her when he found out about this. And when she and Victor come to Casablanca, she's not married to Victor. <gasps> Gasp. Well, that Naughty. <laughs> uh, Paul, uh, Paul Henried, Victor, didn't get on with his fellow actors. He thought Humphrey Bogart was a mediocre actor, and Ingrid Bergman thought Henried was a prima donna. Hmm. Yeah, well, who went on to have any kind of a career, shall we? Mm-hmm. He was best known for two films, both of which came out the same year. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'll just close with this terrifying thought. Okay. Back in the early to mid-2000s, Madonna wanted to remake Casablanca. No. With her playing Ilsa. No. And, as Rick Blaine, Ashton Kutchner. Kutcher. Kutcher, well, whatever, who cares? Uh, no. Madonna pitched the idea to every studio and was, and I I have to say, I, I don't always think well of Hollywood, but this, this restores a little faith. She was unanimously rejected by every studio with one studio executive actually telling her that film is deemed untouchable. She scrapped I, the project after that. I would agree. And we'll get to that too. Yeah. But. Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> Ashton Kutcher. As Rick Dude, Blaine. where's my bar? <laughs> dude, where's the plane? Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, dude, you, me, friends. <laughs> yeah. What an image. What yeah. an image. And as you, you were correct, there, there's trivia goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, but, there's, there's acres of it. And now I, this is where I'm going to feel a little sorry for you. What's that? Well, you're going to have to break down the plot. Oh, boy. And I can't imagine this was an easy task. No, and, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see how, what I sort of did. So. 
It's the early December 1941 in the city of Casablanca in French Morocco with the shadow of World War II and the Nazis covering the world. Jaded, cynical, American in exile Rick Blaine, Humphrey Bogart, runs the hot saloon in the city, Rick's Café Américain, filled with colorful international characters. His carefully balanced life is thrown all to hell when an old love, Ilse Lund, Ingrid Bergman, shows up one night with her companion, the famous resistance fighter Victor Laszlo, Paul Henried. Complicating things is a visiting high-ranking Nazi Major Strasser, Conrad Veidt, who is pressuring Rick's friend, Captain Louis Renault, Cap, who is Claude Rains, to arrest Laszlo before he can con- escape and continue his campaign of inspiring people to fight the Third Reich. Rick comes into possession of documents that could help Laszlo and Ilsa escape, but he is torn between doing what is right and doing what will keep Ilsa with him. And if you don't know the rest of the story, shame on you! The lowdown. Well, That's what I have for the plot. You, you took the easy route, and I do not blame you, because... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one yeah, thing this... I would like to say right off the start, Claude Rains, uh, I was really surprised. I kept waiting for him to enter the room saying, have you ever seen a shirt make a phone call? <laughs> oh, Ooh, <heavens>. spooky. <laughs> well, that was Ed Bagley Jr. and not Claude Rains. <laughs> yes, but, but yes, Claude Rains was largely, his first big American role was as the Invisible Man. So, um, so now we have to talk about this piece of tripe, huh? This was your pick? Uh, yeah, this was my pick. Yeah, I know. Trash. Uh, can, I mean, let's face it. This is no Space Jam. This is... <laughs> hey, it's no Captain Nemo in the Underwater City. And really, let's face it. This movie languished until it was remade in a, and modernized by Pamela Anderson with barbed wire. Because <laughs> that's really when the story... Because, takes takes flight, you know. That's when it transcends. Yeah, common right. cinema. Yeah, by the way, folks, that absolute crap fest barbed wire is in fact supposed to be Casablanca. I let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> it hurts, Paul. It hurts so bad. It, it burns. Um, let's start off with that. This is a film you cannot remake. You cannot no. remake. You, you. I am talking to anybody who can hear anything. Cannot yeah. remake this film. I'm not yeah. saying you may not. I'm saying you can't. Yeah, you can. I, you can throw your money away trying. You can waste the time and effort of a studio creating this. You can put it out there. It won't work. You and, cannot do it. And that little trivia about Madonna wanting to do it just says to me that she wants to be thought of as and as beloved as Ingrid Bergman was in this role. That's the only reason she wanted to remake that. And that's I making a supposition, but. No. Sometimes, very, very rarely in our existence, or anybody's existence, you get a kind of perfect moment. And in that moment, let's say in film production, you somehow get a script that's pretty well written, pretty amazing. And you get cinematographers that can shoot them really well. Oh, there was a few scenes that were out of focus. Yeah, yeah. Um, You get the exact right actors to play the parts. You release the film at exactly the right time. And these things happen very, very rarely. Yeah. This is not one of the... No, I'm just kidding. This (laughs) this is one of those times. This film, as far as I can tell, pretty much started the uh, repertoire movie house thing. (laughs) Like, I swear, independent film uh, uh, theaters came about 
so they could continue to show this film. <laughs> uh. Uh, I'm making this up, but seriously, this is a film that has never not been showing somewhere. I remember when I got my first VCR, and back then, buying videotapes was insanely expensive. Yeah. And I remember looking and finding a copy of Casablanca. It was 80 bucks. <laughs> and for a, and if I had actually been making a living at that point, I still would have, I might have considered it. But yeah. I was working in a bookstore, and I, that was just too much. But, oh, I came close. Yeah, there are certain films that you just like, no, I want to own that. Yeah. Um, I have it on Blu-ray. Um, I don't regret, I don't think it cost that much when I bought it. I think it was like the 75th anniversary or something yeah. like that. Uh, it, it is a great screenplay. It is a brilliant mix of drama and comedy. It never gets so heavy that you start getting bogged down and it's never so funny that it interrupts the plot. Yeah. This movie has a little of everything. It has drama, it has suspense, it's a thriller, it has romance, it has comedy, it has music, it has unforgettable characters, and honestly, I consider this probably the most quotable movie in the world. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and Just, there's quite everybody knows the play it Sam or play it uh, play it Sam, which everyone gets wrong. Yeah. Uh, there's here's looking at you, kid. Oh god. You know, that was Hilla Beans. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was improvised. Bogart improvised the here's looking at you kid and apparently Ingrid Bergman who was still just learning English at that point used to use it in her poker games you know she was practicing English she would just here's looking at you kid (laughs) okay that was a that was a great Norwegian accent by the way I, I, I think it was frightening yeah um, I, oh. there's, but there's also quotes that people forget. Most of them are Claude Rains as Captain Reno. Oh, he has so uh, many it's like, good ones. Rick, I'm so surprised that you're throwing women away that way. Someday they may be uh, <laughs> scarce. Uh, and actually, Reno is basically the humor of this film. Most of the humor, although not all, but not most all, of the but... humor is him. And it's so delicately played. He um, is a comic relief. The other humor no. comes from the, char- the somewhat two-dimensional characters like Sasha and Carl. Yeah. The, who, are, who work there? Who work in Rick's, and they have funny lines. But Claude Rains, there he is. He is an incredibly complex character. Louis Lu, Renault is incredibly complex. Yes, let's talk about Captain Renault, shall we? <laughs> yeah, this is actually one thing I wanted to bring up on how does this movie age? How is it held up? And one of there are some problematic elements, and one of them is, is Captain, Captain Renault. Renault. Yeah, because he is effectively. Uh, using sexual extortion on desperate young women who want to get a visa, and he's basically trading visas for sex. He makes that very clear. And here's what gets weird. Mm-hmm. We know that the lady he wants to take to bed is underage because Rick says that she's underage. Now, to yeah. be fair, we don't know what that age is because I don't know what the drinking age of Morocco was in 1941. <laughs> I didn't think they had one, but uh, actually the actress, Joy Page was between 17 and 18 when she did this movie. So either way you look at it, yuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that, that is the one major Well, she's stain. old enough to get married. Well, yeah, but in Bulgaria, we don't know what the marrying age in Bulgaria is. And, well, you know, to be fair to her, Bulgarian accent is, shall we say, um, <laughs> absent. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure exactly what a Bulgarian accent sounds like, but it isn't what she has. And or in the one line her husband has, or two lines, you know, we'll be there at six. I'll, I'll be, be there, there at ten. 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I think we all know what it sounds like. It sounds like Gert Froba in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> ah, 
<laughs> oh, that's Vulgaria, but you know, yeah, same thing. Yes. Uh, yeah, Captain Renault, we really like him, but we're squidgy about it. Because um, also, he is a collaborator. He works with the Nazis. He he's does, spineless. Yeah, well, yeah, he is. He, As he says, I'm a weather vane. I blow which way, whichever way the wind blows. Now, currently, the wind blows from Vichy. Vichy yeah. was the occupied French, basically the collaborative puppet government set up to work with the Nazis in occupied right. France. Right. But and technically, Morocco, or technically, more specifically, Casablanca, is is unoccupied France because right. the Nazis haven't technically conquered it because they haven't bothered. Right. It looks very much like, well, you'll do what I say because if I order one more guy over here, we'll basically be enough for a government. <laughs> or I should say, if we have one more guy show up on the back lot. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, for, I mean... Now, Renault, he, he, it still works. I still love him. I still think the yes. best couple in this movie are him and Rick. <laughs> they well, are. Come on. They're adorable together. They are. I'm. There is... Uh, I'm sure there's been, as they the kids call it today, shipping, oh, or the yeah. original oh, term slash fic between <laughs> Rick and, and, and Renault. Yeah. Um, I don't get the vibe. Um, I'm I'm willing to let that pass. I am no. not an advocate for that. Um, no, I don't but, see that at all. There's nothing sexualized about it. They, but it's very clear that they love each well, other. You know, it's brotherly love. They understand each other, and uh, they they work really well together. If you want to take it to this far, I'd be willing to say, willing to believe that Renault is bi, if for no other reason that he blows whichever ways the wind blows, <laughs> and so it happens to be blowing from Rick. Uh, well, I like, you know, there's a lot of fairly racy stuff that sneaks into this movie. There's that one line, again, with the Bulgarian woman and her husband, mm -hmm. which I don't know how they got this past it. You know, when she's going to Rick to, to ask him if, you know, can I trust Captain Renault? If basically if I boff him, will he give me the exit visas? Boff? <laughs> yep. And okay. She's she, uh, saying, oh, I'm here with Captain Renault. Ah, and she says, my husband is here as well. And Rick <laughs> says, well, Captain Renault is getting broad-minded. Yeah. Like, whoa! See, <laughs> evidence. I'm, yeah. I'm correct. <laughs> yeah. I, I that, think he, yeah, Rick is implying he'd do both of them. Yeah, but he's, I think he's just making a joke. But the fact that they'd oh, even yeah. mentioned something like that yeah, for yeah. the 19, 1940, well, it's 43, but 1943 is, is yeah, huge. It's surprising, yeah. Yeah, no, Captain Renault, except for his romances, as he put it, puts it, yeah. uh, and the fact that he's taking huge payoffs, uh, and the fact that he's doing what the, although he's not. What's, how's, what do I, how do I want to put this? He's not energetically doing what he's the Germans want. He's not actively want. aiding the Germans, but he is still, he understands that he's he has to do what they want because they he's, could remove him or kill him whenever they want. Right, he's keeping out of trouble and keeping his position is what he's doing, and he's serving nobody. But it's interesting to see what it takes to get him to, uh, I mean, we're guessing this is a lifetime of him doing this, or who knows, he ended up here and decided he could make a little fiefdom, and then the word at war, war happened, who knows, we don't know. Yeah. But um, it's interesting to see what makes him change his mind, and it's Rick. Um, so, yeah, in the end, yeah. I'll say that he gets redemption because he goes off with Rick, and he never does horrible things to young women again. Because <laughs> yeah. that's what I'm I want sure. to happen. <laughs> yep, I want to believe that. But yes, he, he's also, 
I mean, if you look, as he even says to Rick, you're the only one in Casablanca with fewer scruples than I have. And what he's the he's the prefect of police. He's the head of the police force, and he is absolutely unashamedly corrupt. Yeah. When there is a crime, what is his phrase? Round up the usual suspects. Yep, Not and there's invi- one of those lines. Yep, that is, again, one of the great lines that inspired another wonderful movie. <laughs> yes, which is also now problematic, but we, we already talked about that. Yeah, one. yeah. Uh, yeah, and we also have, besides Claude Rains, who is great in this, and to be fair, I do not know a lot of Claude Rains' work. Um, I think that at this point he was actually getting a little long in the tooth um, oh, from no, Hollywood. He, he oh, he would continue to play, but his his leading male roles were, were pretty much done. This is not a leading yeah. role, but it's still... No, he ended up playing a lot of father figures after that. Yeah, but we have a triumvirate here that doesn't get repeated much. It does get mm. repeated in a lesser-known film, a film that I don't think even you have heard of, Max. It's uh, this little film called The Maltese Falcon. <laughs> but we uh, get Bogart... something about bird training? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, it's all about training birds. Birds. Boids. Lousy, <laughs> Boy, stinking boids. Stinking boids. <laughs> uh, we get Humphrey Bogart, mm. Sidney Greenstreet, and Peter Lorre. Oh, and yes. They are these this this group of three, even though they don't, as a whole, interact with each other at the same time nope. uh, in this film. Those three have this chemistry that just works, and it doesn't matter what part they're playing. In this film, Peter Lorre is kind of at his most Peter Lorre. He's greasy. Uh, <laughs> he's slimy. Uh, we're actually impressed when we find out that, as Rick is, that he actually was probably the guy who mur- met, murdered, mur- married, married? Who, mur- who murdered the German couriers with the letters of transit on them. Get, that is one of the, he is one of the great things in this movie is not just, you know, Peter Lorre, let's face it, he's fairly, he doesn't have a lot of range. He, he tends well, to I, do the same thing. But I want to say the three him. of them don't. Yeah, they use him perfectly in this. And the character of Ugarte He's only on screen for, what, five minutes, maybe. Maybe, yeah. But immediately, you know everything about him. Yep. You know who he is. You know what he does. And again, he has some of the greatest lines, you know, you despise me, Rick, don't you, Rick? I suppose I probably would have half a thought, half a thought I, would. I would. Yeah. And then it's like, I have many friends here in Casablanca, but since you despise me, you're the only one I trust. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And of course, there's where the whole movie like turns right there. Because if that doesn't happen, the movie doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get uh, Signor Ferrari, who's the Italian guy who owns the. <laughs> yes, blue the Italian parrot. guy who's Italian. Suppo- oh, uh, that was another bit of trivia. Sidney Greenstreet didn't want to wear the that white suit. That is like iconic for him. He wears that all in a lot of his movies. He yeah. didn't want to. He he asked the director. He said, "I want to. I should wear something that makes it look like he's assimilated more into Moroccan culture because he's take he's lived there for who knows how long." Right. And he runs the entire criminal underground. The director said, "Nope, you can wear a fez." That was I it. think it works fine. Yeah. Um, and he is per- he is great. You know you understand him quickly. He's kind of two dimensional, but as he, I have to say he's the most open criminal. I mean, he literally will tell these strangers, yes, as the head of all illegal activities in Casablanca. It's like really, you're well, just telling fair, us that? He, well, he might tell us that just to say, don't bother going to anybody else. So it could yeah. actually just be a sales tactic. But we get, pre- I mean, all of the liquor comes through town goes through him because yeah. Rick has to go pick up his shipment from him. And cigarettes, yep. He, he has this wonderful little tiny moment that I don't know if it was scripted or not. And it 
I've known it, noticed it for years, and it's a great tiny little thing. But when he finishes talking to Ilsa, uh, Ingrid Bergman, mm-hmm. and he, he says to her, basically, he's like, I don't know why I'm telling you this, because I can't it possibly profit from it. Yeah. But you might want to talk to Monsieur Rick about the letters of transit. And she leaves. And just after she leaves, uh, Sidney Greenstreet picks up a fly yeah. swatter and he swats does. the table with it. He does that twice. He does that yeah. after Rick leaves, too. He goes that, which, again, makes me wonder, why did he tell them that? Obviously, he does have something to gain. Well, he's I, just he's just striking. He's a spider, and he's going after victims. Well, and I think that he's also, it's it's a little punctuation that says these people are nothing. Yeah. You know, I, they're I, just I fly specs. Yep, I would, yeah, they mean no more to, more to me than this fly does. Yeah, and again, he does that really well. And you get the feeling that despite the jovial attitude, he's not somebody to cross. No, and I, I'm even willing to believe, and this is just me writing or reading stuff that's not there into it, that the reason he tells her isn't because he finds her charming, but he's we know he wants to buy Rick's, because Rick's is way more popular than the Blue Parrot. Yeah. And hey, it's obvious why. The Blue Parrot is the only place in the movie where I actually feel it's hot. For some reason, <laughs> yeah. the Blue Parrot just feels stifling. Yeah, and it looks I, crowded and on comfortable and dirty yeah and no there's no music no one's having a good time and so you can tell it's not the place that rick's is and that's probably because partially not you know not just because of sam but it's probably because uh you're just not as nice a person as rick is or you don't know how to have a good time or too much illegal loyalty you really have to wonder what he's going to do to rick's I mean, I like that uh, when Rick is selling him, he says, you know, Sasha, Carl, and Emil, they all have to stay on us. Of course, it wouldn't be Rick's without them. As he says, it's, I have a deal with Sam where he gets 25% of the profits. I happen to know it is 10%, but he is worth 25 mm-hmm. And it's like, and you, you, know, have to, yep, you have to wonder, yep. is he going to keep that? Is he going to do that? There's, no. There's no there's, way to there's, enforce it. I assume they're all going to be out the door. There's going to be a pay cut. And I don't yeah. think they're going to be out the door. I think that if he has any smarts at all... He'll continue to let it run the way it ran, but he's going to need somebody to front it, and I'm going to say that it's never going to be the same. And of course, yeah. you know, once the war ends, and it really is never going to be the same. But yeah. that's okay. This is one of those characters. This is one of those performances. This is one of those parts where we get to read so much into it because it's suggested through the acting and the lines. Mm-hmm. And this is a really tough thing to do. And I say that because we don't see it very often. Um, and I hate to bring it up as a weird parallel, but in some ways, this is the reason that to me, the best of all of the star Wars movies will be the original one because of what he doesn't say. Uh. He says things, oh, I fought in the clone wars with your father. What's the clone wars? Oh, I yeah. bet they're this, I bet they're that. But it turns out what they actually are is, terrible and boring yeah. but uh at least there's trade negotiations in pockets <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's not get into that but, but the yeah, original no, that, star wars is one of the reasons it works so well as a movie is because of the things they don't tell us yeah they don't go into exquisite detail on what everything is and it's the same no. here we never find out why rick can't go back to america no the writers on this said we just couldn't come up with a good enough reason, so we didn't give a reason at all. They don't the screen the the playwrights, they don't know. They didn't no. know why he couldn't go back, and that works. Yep, it sure does. And uh, we hear things about, oh, he was basically fighting for the underdog sides in two well, reasons. Well, he was wars. a mercenary, yeah, but he always but, tended to be on the underdog side. But in a way, he wasn't a very good one because he yes. was, quote-unquote, the wrong side. You know, the, if you chose the winning side, it would have paid much better. Mm-hmm. Um 
And he actually, Rick has one of my favorite lines. It is so small and throwaway, and it's hilarious. And it's when uh, Major Strasse, which is German for street, yeah. uh, <laughs> shows up in the Café Amelcan for the first time, and he calls Rick over, and he's holding out what is obviously Rick's held passport. And he's told, oh, you did this, that, and the other thing, and Rick's takes the passport, and he looks at it, and he's are my eyes really brown? That's a, <laughs> Yep, that is a great line. My other favorite is when, like, Louis is trying, as you get the idea, he just tried many many times to find out about rick's past right and he's you know why did you come here i came to casablanca for my health i came to casablanca for the waters the waters but we're in the desert i was misinformed (laughs) (laughs) yeah and yeah the acting so bogart himself in general does not have a broad range mostly when you play get bogart you play bogart but there's sort of the general two bogarts you get the heavy bogart or you get the somewhat romantic Bogart. And here you kind of get a little of both. And it you works also can, great. You can get a... I have to say, he can do other stuff. If you ever see he Treasure can. of Sierra Madre, he does a great, you know, man slowly losing his sanity. And in well, Sabrina, he's adorable. He is, but in Sabrina's a little troublesome because it's like, wow, you're really too old. And here, yeah, yeah. if you look real close, mm. it's kind of like, I think he's 40 and she's 20. Uh, he's, he was 43 and Ingrid Bergman was 27. Well, okay, and the, so funny, the, the odd thing is, you know, Paul, you know, Paul Henry, who's supposed, who Victor, she talks about as this older man, yeah. was only was thirty four at the time. Oh, here's so the he thing that's seven years older than her. Here's the great thing about uh, Ilsa is that she does not come off as naive, and neither of the people that are interested in her come off as wanting her for a a sex object. No, she's not. They're not into her just because she's beautiful. Oh, no. no, come on. She really is. Ingrid Bergman is so friggin' did that flawless face, my God. But what's interesting to me is that she's not portrayed as a sex object either. Like, all of the clothes she wears are very covering, and none of them are particularly clingy. And it's interesting well, because they really the do focus... Ah, you know, still the 40s. There was probably plenty mm-hmm. of times you could have plunging necklines and all that stuff. And she's played as a much mm-hmm. more interesting character. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks about how that she loves uh, uh, Laszlo, Victor Laszlo, because he basically said, uh, you're trapped here in Oslo, Norway, which I think is where Ingrid Bergman's from. Um, and he brought her the world of ideas. And so she initially worshipped him as somebody who was really worldly and smart. And then she became part of his cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when she does meet Rick in France, right before the Germans come wandering through... I was there when the American. I was there when the Americans blundered into Berlin in 1918. <laughs> um, a great line by Renault. Um, yes, yeah, so when the Germans show up, I love that. You know, Rick has that line. I remember every detail. The Germans wore gray. You wore, you blue. wore blue. But when she meets him, you can tell that what happens is things are still horrible. You know, France is still uh, free at that moment for the next five minutes. And she lost the most important person in her life. And she comes across Rick, who has some of the same qualities as Victor Laszlo. And initially, I think she falls in love with him for companionship. But I think she really, truly loves him. She sees some of the same qualities, Mm -hmm. although admittedly not currently exercised, in Rick Blaine as she does in Victor Laszlo. And then at the last minute... She finds out, and there's a this great scene where they're. You know, this is in the flashback where mm. you can tell it's like, oh, we got to catch the train. She knows, 
you can tell she knows she is hesitant and she's like uh what the hell do i do well even that line kiss me like it was for the last time oh my god stab right to the heart oh that's just painful yeah oh and the seat when he's standing at the train station reading the note from her and the ink is running in the rain like the world is crying for him or just oh. the scene where she first shows up and she's making Sam play, Times Goes By, and Rick comes storming over. I thought I told you never to play that. And he nods toward her and he looks up and there is this look. And Humphrey Bogart, mm. as I said, his range is generally not very broad. There are some some mm. uh, exceptions. And I'll say things like Commander Quig in the Kane Mutiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will also say Henry Ornott in uh, The African Queen, which oh, is a yeah. great role. In general, though, his range does not broaden much. That look on his face where he looks up and sees her, you see the dagger go in and twist. Yeah. And it's you just see like the pain. You see the shock. It, it is without a word. And I have to say, I really, I, a little thing in that scene, I love the way Sam is trying to protect him. Mm-hmm. When, you know, Ilsa is asking, oh, is Rick, oh, 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 he went home. So you always go home this early? Oh, he never, uh, no, he's got a girl at the blue pair. He, and he just looks, finally he gives up. You know, she says, you used to be a much better liar. And he just looks at her and says, leave him alone, Miss Ilsa. You're bad luck to him. Yeah, and you get that, that, that look too. That one look tells us, oh, that's how he changed from Richard to Rick. Yeah, that's when and, he cha- that's when he became a different person, and you can tell Sam has not forgiven her for that. Never mind and, Rick; he's Sam is still pissed at her. No, and well, we we said we'd talk about Sam. Yeah. Let's talk about Sam. Yeah, Sam is unfortunately a product of the times. Yeah, he's a black character in a '40s movie. He's not going to have a lot of development, and he's there really as a support for Rick. But I like to think, the way I like to see him, even though it's the way it's not portrayed, is I like to see him as Rick's friend. Yeah, and he's that's also it. a junior partner in the place. You know, Rick yes. does give him 10%. That's that's kind of a lot. In a place where he's op- where it is not easy to make money in a situation like that. No, so yes, he does respect him, and he doesn't, like when when he's waiting for Ilsa to come back and Sam is trying to get him to leave, he never like orders him out or... You know, shuts him up. He's no. talking to him the way that angry, frightened, drunk guy would talk to his best friend. Yeah, uh, and the one there's this one tiny little throwaway thing that's unfortunately fairly racist, and it's said by Ingrid Bergman oh. when she first shows up. She says, "Who's the boy at the yeah. piano?" And that yeah. is a diminutive used against black people of the time. Yeah. and it's quite obvious that people think of Sam as lesser. It's not flagrant, but it's there, and it's problematic. But thankfully, I think, at least as far as the characters are concerned, they're friends. Yeah, but and you notice he leaves Sam without a thought. But I we don't even get a reason, goodbye. Well, I think he leaves him in his best care as he can because mm-hmm. he knows that Sam is not the kind of guy that could do what he needs to do. Mm-hmm. He's not a guy who ran guns. He's not a mercenary. He's not We don't know that. Him. We don't know how long Sam's been around him. We, we don't, don't know anything we, about where they meet, where they met. We don't no. know did he run guns with him? We don't we, know. I get the impression that they met in France. Mm. And I think it's after his last war. I don't get any impression from Sam that he's ever been in any kind of combat. I think Again, Sam that's, has, a, that's a strong point of the movie is we yeah. don't know so we no. can come up with our own. And isn't it's, it weird how that works? when movies have that balance where they don't tell you things and it works so much better, midichlorians, than when they do. 
Mm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I had a little something in my throat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's see if I can get it out. <laughs> um, One of the thing I wanted to bring up, because we're, we're getting toward the end. I know. Did, I just want to see what you think of this. And again, this is something about how the movie can be interpreted. Why the, There's so much to it. There were so many layers and so many levels. On the one hand, you can see Ilsa as this woman who is motivated by love and desperate and lo- is torn between these two men. I've heard at least one person say that when she goes to Rick toward the end of the movie and she goes to him to beg for the letters of transit and threatens him with a gun and then eventually just says she can't do it, she loves him too much, is that real or is she manipulating him? Yes. Yeah. See, it's not as clear. You can see it either way. And that's, again, one of the cool things about the character is the one thing that Rick knows this, Laszlo knows this, everyone stresses it. She is committed to the cause. Yep. And she will do whatever it takes. And that's another reason I really like her as a character, as a strong woman character that's not played as a sex object. Mm -hmm. And Um, she's not some fainting blossom. You know, she carries a gun. She's not afraid... You know, when I mean, people she won't the, use it, but yeah, but she thankfully, won't, but, <laughs> but you know, everyone is sort of trying to protect her, and she's like, "No, knock it off. If you're going, I'm going with you." Yeah, I want to say that on a scale of one to ten, she loves Victor Laszlo a ten, and she loves Rick a nine. Yeah, I think it's that close, and I think that she facing that. She doesn't want to hurt either of them, but really when it comes down to it, when she has to make a choice, she's going to make a choice for Victor. And that's why she chooses Rick, because Victor needs to continue. He needs to be safe and he needs to be able to do his work. And so what she's doing is is a sacrifice. And I think all of us know that, especially Rick. And mm. I think that's when Rick is fine, finally heals. And you see his face relax. It's like, you know, I'll do the thinking for the, for all of us. And he does, and he says, all right, I, and I, I know what we have to do, and I have to do what is right. And I think, again, like you say, that also is Louis' redemption, because he sees what Rick is doing, not just in the name of love, but in the name of patriotism, in the name of protecting the world. Mm. He's giving up the thing that is most important to him, and Louis sees that and goes, okay, yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. I forget my comfortable life. We're going to go find a free French garrison. We're going to fight back. I think that basically Louis has never been in a position where he's seen something like that, where it's he, yeah. he's read about it. It may be, well, he said he was in, he was with the Americans in yeah. 1918. So it's like, that was a long time ago. That was 23 yeah. years ago. Um, so I think that since then he's led the comfortable life and just decided, well, I've done my part. I don't have to do it. But now it's like, oh, here's this example right in front of me. And, you know, I'm, I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> um, but uh, I also want to say that when... Elsa figures out what's going on when he says you're getting on the plane. Mm-hmm. She that's when she, her love for Rick goes from nine to nine point five. Yeah. She's like, "Wow, I didn't know there. I I didn't think I'd see that part of you wake up again. Yeah. And now I she's, have. And now I feel really bad for leaving you." And he's like, "No, it's okay. This is where you're supposed to go." And he says that wonderful thing about you know we'll always have Paris. And it's not just that it's a wonderful line, but he's saying in this moment. We got back the love and the happiness we had in that time, and it had been poisoned or soured for me because of you disappearing. Now I understand it. We understand each other. We have we have only the good of that memory now. That good part came back, and I can that's going to keep me going. Yeah. Again, it's just, oh, 
I have seen this movie so many times, and at the end, I am still tense when they're at the airport (laughs) and i am still moved when he says and the names you'll put down on the letters are mr and mrs victor laszlo i know it's coming but it's still ah yeah put that put down that phone (laughs) (laughs) oh got it and strasser is so perfect because when he's talking he doesn't even consider rick to be worth his notice he's like oh right i should pull my gun and rick just very placidly shoots him yeah well as well he should yes um I, yeah. And, you know, I'm going to have to say, Max, I'm going to have to ask you to put down that phone. And it's time <laughs> to tell people what we think of this yeah. steaming pile of dog puke. <laughs> the Roundup. Well, yes, this has been a slightly different format. The fact that these are our favorite movies kind of yeah. gives it away. I love... Look, I think the concept... I don't understand the concept of having a favorite movie. Because I think that's... No. That's meaningless. Because you can have your favorite comedy, your favorite romance, your favorite musical movie, your favorite guilty pleasure movie, your favorite movie that you watch when you're feeling depressed. Like Barb Wire? That doesn't register as a favorite anywhere. (laughs) That's your favorite favorite movie for when it's either that or you want to break your own fingers with a hammer. Yeah. Because quite honestly, that's more entertaining. Um, I have seen Barb Wire, by the way. It's barb wire, not barbed. barbed. No, it's the equivalent of barbed wire. It's (laughs) ugly. It's painful. You know, people collect barbed wire serves a purpose, and that movie doesn't. You know, people collect that stuff. Barbed wire, really? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. This and so the idea of a favorite doesn't mean anything to me. I don't get that. But if I had to, it's. If I knew someone who had never seen a movie and they said I want I've only I only want to see one movie in my life, I'd say this one. Yeah. I would say this is one of the greatest all-around movies there is. I'll go with, I'll, I will I will qualify that too. I would say western films or american yeah, films because yeah, I don't my my yeah. breadth of knowledge for for european films and stuff is just not broad enough to know. Yeah, but that's fair. That's fair. For, I think this a, is one uh, of the greatest films this country has ever produced. I, they really don't get much better. Mm. They, you know, and the you could sit there. Would you change anything? I could be tempted to change a couple of things for today's sensibilities, like to make Sam a little bit more equal, to uh, just get rid of a, a couple of the little innuendos or things that are not appropriate, or maybe get the ages a little closer. That ooh, I have to I have to beep that out. Yeah, oh dear, <laughs> I haven't had to do that in a long Naughty. time. Uh, Bumpy, will you bump the beep that out for me? <laughs> I'll have Bumpy do it. Yeah, um, he's good at post production. Uh, <laughs> d- no, you, you don't touch this film. You don't. No. You, you just, can't, and you can't update it because no. it's the a time, thing of the times. That's the way it was in 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 a point not early December nineteen forty one. It had, and you know, it had to be before Pearl Harbor. Because obviously America wasn't in the war. There's not a lot of time. Be- I have to- yeah, there's I have six, six days. days. <laughs> December. Yeah, you got six days. It must have been like de- December 1st or something. Yeah. Not that, um, how, the, how the heck do you know? It, it's not like it snows in Morocco. Yeah, so I just don't have any issues with this film at all. Mm. It's, again, just when it's starting to get too heavy, it gets funny. And yeah. just when you think it's going to be a lot of funny, it goes and does something else. Um 
it, it you know some of the accents are a little off you know again it's like oh you're yeah. italian okay who cares <laughs> I, nobody cares um these special effects and there's really only two major shots and they're both kind of terrible mm. um one's very early in the film and one's very late in the film <laughs> and they both the involve an airplane yeah. uh, <laughs> but so who cares this is yeah. just yeah i don't I really don't know of another film that is as close to perfect as this for American film. I really don't. Yeah. This, this film is amazing. Yeah. It, it makes me feel good. It makes me cry. Hey, I admit yep. it. I, it makes me cry. I, the, the scene with the Marseillaise always gives me chills. I've seen it so many times, but I start singing along with as much of the Marseillaise as I actually know. Max, you don't know any of it. I do, in fact. I know the, the first lo- couple of lines. And they are? Allons enfants de la patrie, le jour de gloire arrivé. Do you Contre you nous de la tyrannie. That's about as far as I go. You just said, I don't like the pastry, please make it fresh. And, and then, you added to... as- then you added asphalt Pop-Tart, please. I but, did not know. add asphalt Pop-Tarts. No <laughs> Frenchman would ever say that word. I'm, I truly believe no one in France even knows what a Pop-Tart is. And yes, if you have had French pastry, of course they'd sing about it. Tart du pop. Yep. <laughs> it's like strudel, some toasted. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, we're totally off the rails now. Yeah. Um, so speaking of other favorites, what are we watching next week? What's we, what, what's one of your, what's your pick for one of your favorite things? Well, we we can't go up. <laughs> we just can't. So we're going to go sideways, but we're going to go into a film that is directly related to this film. It is. It is. Okay. And if you think hard, you'll know why. The film that I'm going to choose is the first film that I ever saw more than once in a cinema. Hmm. Why to this day because I was seven, I decided to see What's Up, Doc, Ah. more than once. Why my parents even took me to see it, I will never know. But I distinctly remember seeing it at least twice, maybe three times, in the theater in 1972. It is a feel-good film. It is not a particularly well-known film. It did very well, spoiler, uh, in its time. But if you ask a lot of people, even our age, about that film, they may have heard of it. But a lot of people haven't seen it. And, and if you're younger than us, you probably don't even know who we're talking about. Next week yeah, uh, on, on our show, we will be asking ourselves, what's up, Doc? Indeed. Yes. And until then, everyone, start singing La Marseillaise. And you can sit, or if you've finished, you can sit down. So I and assume all, fr- all of our French listeners were standing the whole time. And I vote for Bumpy. <laughs> Death to Bumpy, exactly. <laughs> This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Music